And now let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts gathered here be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Thank you for being our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I would love to see this Luke passage as a movie or a short film. Maybe it wouldn't be a full-length movie. If one exists, I haven't seen it, but I imagine that it would begin with a scene at the dinner table in the Pharisee's house. People eating together and talking. It would look like an ordinary first-century Jewish meal. But then, dramatic music would begin to play as the woman with the alabaster jar entered and approached Jesus. The camera would zoom in on her, weeping, and then bathing Jesus' feet, and finally anointing them and kissing them. The camera would zoom out and pan around the table to show the expressions of those dining at the table with Jesus, pausing on the Pharisee with a very unhappy look on his face. And we would hear his voice saying, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. But his mouth is not moving, telling us that he thought this, but he did not say it out loud. And then Jesus would speak to the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. The camera would show a close-up of Jesus' face while he told the story about the two debtors, concluding with the question, now which one of them will love him more? The camera would zoom out a little, showing the Pharisee as he replies that the debtor who loved the creditor more would be the one for whom the greater debt was canceled. Then the camera would zoom out even more, showing the woman still bathing and anointing Jesus' feet while Jesus rebukes the Pharisee for his lack of hospitality. No water for my feet, no kiss, no anointing of my head with oil, and praising the woman for her act of love. Bathing my feet with her tears, drying them with her hair, kissing my feet and anointing them. The camera would remain on a wide angle while Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins... Her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. The camera would zoom in on the woman's tear-stained face as Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. But then the camera would quickly flash to each of Jesus' dining companions, looking at their surprised faces with jaws dropped and brows furrowed as they begin to ask one another, who is this who even forgives sins? And then I think some calm lyrical music would begin to play as the camera moved back to Jesus and the woman as he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You may find this story a bit odd, maybe even completely bizarre, and that's fair. It was strange during Jesus' time too. That's probably why it was interesting and important enough to be included in Scripture. Something important was happening. Now, not all that strange is the presence of an uninvited guest. We probably think that's pretty odd. How did this person who wasn't invited to the dinner party get into the dinner party? But at that time, townspeople would have crowded around the walls of the home or in the courtyard to see the Pharisee and his guests. So how the uninvited woman came to be there is pretty easy to explain. The Pharisee's lack of hospitality is unusual, and the woman's act of touching and caressing Jesus' feet and letting down her hair in public would have violated social conventions. 
Also, the woman was known to be a sinner. That means she was likely ritually unclean, and by touching Jesus, she would have made him unclean as well. And people would not have looked kindly upon that. And one of the guests, Jesus, could read minds. He knew what the Pharisee was thinking. He knew the character of the woman. That was unusual. Not unusual was the exchange of a riddle about the debtors between Jesus and the Pharisee. That was pretty consistent with dinner party conversation at the time. But Jesus wasn't making polite and entertaining conversation to stump his friends. He was making a point about the extravagant love of God who forgives even those who are thought to be the worst sinners through grace. Before the sermon, the children helped us learn our memory verse. So let's say it together one more time, and we are going to say the whole thing. You're not going to repeat after me. We're just going to say it all together. Think we can do it? Yeah, okay. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Awesome. I hope that that was already familiar to you, um, but now it's, I hope it's really ingrained inside your brain because it's important. Remember, the greatest commandment and the second one that's like it. So in September, I preached on the greatest commandment as found in Deuteronomy, which is quoted here as the first greatest commandment. And... Um, all Jews at the time of Jesus would have known that scripture from Deuteronomy. It was their greatest commandment. And so when Jesus is quoting it, that's something that everyone would have been familiar with. But then he adds a second, love your neighbor as yourself. And so in September, I spoke about discipleship as loving God with your whole life. Discipleship and following Jesus comes down to loving God and loving our neighbors as Jesus adds this second commandment. But what does that actually look like? I said in September that discipleship often looks ordinary, but that it seeps into even the most mundane parts of our daily lives and transforms them. So how do we love God and neighbor in the midst of our everyday lives? A friend of mine, who's a pastor at another church, told me a story that happened in her daily life recently that I want to share with you. Her church has been hosting freeze night shelters for the homeless on many of the cold nights that we've had this winter because we're really having winter this year. And um, the homeless in our culture today are often thought of and treated as those um, kind of like the woman in our story, as outcasts, as sinners, as people who we don't typically um, invite to our dinner parties, people who we don't always hang out with. But my friend... Um, being a night person and enjoying hospitality and hanging out with all sorts of people said she really enjoys serving at freeze night shelters. She, she also doesn't mind staying up all night. That is not my personality at all. So God may call me to serve differently, but she, as someone who likes to stay up all night, likes to serve um, at freeze night shelters. And she told me about a bonus benefit for her, which is that while everyone's sleeping and she's staying up all night, she gets a ton of work done. So it's really, really helpful. Now, the first night that they hosted one of these at her church, she got a lot of work done, and the second night they were going to host one, she was really behind on work, and she was really looking forward to all the work that she was going to get done while everybody was sleeping. But the second night, they had some different guests staying at their church. One in particular was crying out in her sleep and kept waking everyone up, and obviously, sleeping people don't like to be woken up. People were getting angry. People were getting aggressive. 
it was a problem. Um, and so my friend, thinking that this young woman had been having a nightmare, woke her up and took her to a different room, thinking that she would diffuse the situation, calm everybody down, and take a, you know, everybody takes a short break, and then she'd get back to her work. And she expected a short break, but instead she spent the rest of the night, which was several more hours, sitting with this guest who wept and poured out a life story of unfathomable difficulty, especially for her young age, all night long. And my friend said that at one point she started getting worried about how much work she had left to do. Remember, she had counted on that time. And all that important ministry work that wasn't getting done until she realized that this interruption was her work. It was the work that God had called her to do that night and that everything else could wait. Maybe even perhaps that other work wasn't that important. In the morning, the woman who had wept and talked with her all night told my friend that nobody had ever listened to her before. Nobody had ever taken the time to listen to her before. And setting aside her work and her important tasks and giving her full attention to this woman, my friend lived out her love for God and her love for neighbor and was able to show God's love to someone else. Now, an opportunity just like that might not come to us every day, but in the midst of our daily lives, all the important work and play and other preferred tasks that we have to do and that occupies our time, God is waiting. God is there with opportunities for us to live out our love for God and neighbor if we're paying attention. The interruptions to all those things that we think are the best way to spend our time may actually be the work that God intends for us to do. There's someone someone in your life, at your school or your workplace or the grocery store or your neighborhood, or maybe even in your family, who needs to experience God's love. And God can use us as people who have experienced God's love to share God's love with others. And God is calling us to pay attention, especially when we're interrupted. God may present us with opportunities in those interruptions. My friend's work was interrupted, and God was there. The Pharisees' dinner was interrupted, and God was there. God was there in the interruptions. Back at that dinner at the Pharisees' house, I think it's important to point out that every gospel story tells a story of Jesus being anointed by a woman. But in Matthew and in Mark and in John, that anointing occurs at the end of Jesus' ministry. The stories are not identical, but... They're similar in the sense that they're at the end of Jesus' ministry and they're understood either as an anointing for burial in advance or as a coronation, as king of kings, king of the Jews, after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But this story in Luke is distinctly different. It occurs at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When he had just begun teaching and healing people, Jesus wasn't well known. People weren't trying to get rid of him yet. But in Luke's version of the story, the woman anointing Jesus is not anointing him for burial or for a coronation, but is a true act of gratitude in response to the forgiveness that she has received. Because she has been forgiven much, she responds to Jesus with gratitude and with thanksgiving, loving Jesus like the debtor in his story who owed the greater debt. Now, the story really emphasizes that she was a sinner, However, are some sins worse than others in God's eyes? No, they're not. But the woman, because she recognized her need for forgiveness, received more than the Pharisee. 
She received more than a Pharisee who was so caught up in being a good religious person that he didn't even recognize his need for God, his need for grace and forgiveness that Jesus came and had to offer him. If you read commentaries on this text, you'll see arguments that the woman was forgiven because she showed Jesus an act of great love and faith. Alternatively, you'll also find arguments that she showed this act of love for and faith in Jesus only after receiving forgiveness at some earlier point. Now, this is one of those chicken and egg scenarios. Which one came first? Who really knows? Convincing arguments can be made either way. But what we do know is that long before, long before this woman encountered Jesus or received forgiveness, God loved her. This is what drew her to Jesus, God's love for her. God loves all of us, every single person on this earth. Whether they know him or not, whether they're a sinner and an outcast or an apparently good religious person. God loves us all the same. God loved the sinful woman and the Pharisee and the other guests and the bystanders that day the same. And God will always love us wherever we are. If you have heard me preach or talk to me for any length of time, you probably know that I love children's books. Especially my favorites are the ones that have a double meaning, theological undertone that deepens my knowledge of God and helps children to do the same. We're going to read one of those together today. It's called, Wherever You Are, My Love Will Find You by Nancy Tillman. And the, the pictures will be on the screen so you can follow along. I wanted you more than you will know, than you ever will know, so I sent love to follow wherever you go. It's as high as you wish it. It's quick as an elf. You'll never outgrow it. It stretches itself. So climb any mountain, climb up to the sky. My love will find you. My love can fly. Make a big splash, go out on a limb. My love will find you. My love can swim. It never gets lost, never fades, never ends. If you're working, or playing, or sitting with friends. You can dance till you're dizzy, paint till you're blue. There's no place, not one, that my love can't find you. And if someday you're lonely, or someday you're sad, or you strike out at baseball, or think you've been bad, just lift up your face, feel the wind in your hair. That's me, my sweet baby. My love is right there. In the green of the grass, in the smell of the sea, in the clouds floating by, at the top of a tree, in the sound crickets make at the end of the day, you are loved, you are loved, you are loved, they all say. My love is so high and so wide and so deep, it's always right there, even when you're asleep. So hold your head high and don't be afraid to march to the front of your own parade. If you're still my small babe or you're all the way grown, my promise to you is you're never alone. 
You're my angel, my darling, my star, and my love will find you wherever you are. This book on the book jacket says it was written about a parent's love for their child, and it's certainly representative of that, but this book is also about God's provenient grace. It's about God's love and grace for us that goes before, long before we're even aware of it. God's provenient grace was active in the sinful woman's life. It's active in our lives, and it's active in the lives of everyone that we encounter in the world, whether they realize it or not. And we can be messengers of God's love for others. That's part of our call as disciples. We have experienced God's love, and we are called to love God and to love others as an outpouring of God's love for us. Returning again to that dinner at the Pharisee's house, the sinful woman demonstrated both love of God and neighbor toward Jesus, who was both human and God. And Jesus, who was God, demonstrated the love of God and love of neighbor toward her as a fellow human. She was known as a sinner, as an outcast, and Jesus made God's love palpable and real in her life. In Wesleyan theology, we call the moment of recognition of one's need for God, of repentance from sin and acceptance of forgiveness, justification. Justification is the moment of transition from not knowing and accepting God to doing so. When God's justifying grace pardons and forgives sin, that is the moment of justification. And once a person is justified, they begin a life of discipleship or sanctification, as as Wesleyan theology terms it, a lifelong process of growth in the knowledge and love of God and others. Through God's sanctifying grace and the Holy Spirit working within us, we become more and more like Christ as we grow in our love for God and for others. In this story at the Pharisee's house, we got a glimpse of a woman's joy and appreciation for God at the time of justification. That time when she received forgiveness from her sins and her response of love and gratitude is beautiful. I think that one reason I think this story would make a good movie is not just the drama and the conflict, though those things are important for a good movie, but because it's a story of transformation. It's a story about the love of God entering into and transforming someone's life and their act of love in return. It turns out that all you need is love. We have God's love because God offers it to us all the time. But in response, We love God and we love our neighbor in gratitude to that love that God is already surrounding us with each and every day. Today, I'd like to conclude this story of transformation with a blessing. A blessing for this story and a blessing for us. This blessing is a reflection on Jesus' anointing and the anointing that we receive in other ways in our everyday lives. It's called Blessing for the Anointing by one of my favorite writers, Jan Richardson in her book, Circle of Grace. Some with ointment, some with tears. Me, today, with words gathered and treasured, carried and poured out for you, wherever you are. May you welcome this as what it is, a needful extravagance, an offering both lavish and crucial that has let go of everything, to lay itself at your feet and tell you, I see you, 
I bless you. And you, where can you go that you do not need this anointing? This blessing that drenches the one who gives, the one who receives. Those final words strike me. The blessing that drenches the one who gives and the one who receives. This woman's blessing did not only bless Jesus, it also blessed her, and it blesses us as we receive her story. And this blessing today meets us wherever we are. Just like God's love meets us wherever we are, there's no place too far from God's love or from God's grace, and there's nobody in the world who is too far from God's love and grace and forgiveness. And as followers of Christ, may we know this deep within our hearts. All we need is love. Love for God and love for neighbor. We're called to live that out in our daily lives wherever we are as a response to God's love for us. Let us pray. Loving God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We are grateful for the love that you show us each and every day, wherever we are. We ask that you guide us in sharing your love with others. Remind us that we are yours and that you are with us. Enable us to love others as you love them, whoever they are and wherever they are, so that the world might know you through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.